0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Amitabh Chandra, professor of public policy and director of health policy research here at the Kennedy School. He's a member of the Congressional Budget Office's panel of health advisors and an elected member of the Institute of Medicine. And his research on cost growing cost growth in healthcare has been widely cited around the world. Amitabh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here. So recently, the New York Times published a staff editorial acknowledging the three-year anniversary of Obamacare. It mostly praised its effects. What do you think of the law you know, three years after its passage? I've
1: always been a, a, a fan of this law. I think it's an imperfect piece of legislation, but it is the first piece of legislation to really take on the biggest challenge facing American health care, which is the challenge of insuring the uninsured. So we've got, depending on how you count it, between 45 and 50 million uninsured people in the United States. And as a result of having uninsurance, two things happen. First, they don't get access to high-quality health care when they need it. But second, and far more significant for economists, is the fact that when they are sick, they face massive out-of-pocket spending and that financial uncertainty really decimates families and in many ways decimates the economy. So I think the greatest value of Obamacare is to provide at least 30 million Americans with much needed health insurance. Now many of those provisions have yet to kick in, but I think for me as an economist, the insuring the uninsured will be its lasting legacy. There are, as you know, other challenges confronting American health care, like making sure that when people are insured, they get access to high-quality health care. And the third biggest challenge is, you know, how do we do something about the cost of health care? And I think on the second and third challenges, the challenge of quality and the challenge of cost, Obamacare is really not designed to do much there. You know, it's really a big insurance mandate.
0: So cost if cost effectiveness seems to be one of the biggest things that uh you know worries legislators and worries people just looking for uh for health care insurance is there anything in obamacare that can bring that cost down and if not what should be done So I think the 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 first thing
1: it's very hard to do anything about costs when you have uninsured patients um, and the reason that it's hard is it's very hard to tell a hospital or a provider, gee, you should charge people less and do less, when they're going to turn around and say, well, wait a second, we have to take care of all these uh, indigent patients for free. So insuring the uninsured is, in some sense, step one on the on the battle against cost growth in healthcare. No mm-hmm. question about that. In terms of what Obamacare does on costs, I think it has some interesting experiments which may show us the way forward, but Having money for experiments on showing us the way forward is very different than saying we actually know the answer. Because the problem with managing costs in healthcare is we don't really know where the waste is. I mean, often you can point to particular medical interventions and say, this intervention has absolutely no therapeutic benefit, and so we shouldn't do it. I'd agree with that. But those are rare cases. Um, most of medicine is. Um, Medicine where the therapy works for some patients, but then it can be overused in other patients. And then knowing, well, gee, this is the patient who benefits and this is the patient who doesn't benefit is very, very hard to manage. I think the classic example of this is something like angioplasty with stents. This is an expensive but life-saving medical um, innovation. And when it's done for heart attack to patients, you know, it can save their lives. Now, when it's done to patients who are coming in with chest pain, it's less clear what the benefit is. So it's not as simple as, well, we should pay for angioplasty or we should not pay for angioplasty. It's really figuring out the kind of patient who benefits and the kind of patient who doesn't benefit. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. The fat in healthcare is in some sense um, like fat on a piece of steak. You know, It's marble throughout the meat. It's not something that one can just kind of cut out in clean slices.
0: So as a matter of Public policy. How are we supposed to approach this problem? I mean, legislators certainly aren't experts. They can't figure out, uh, you know, what in that steak is uh, is fat and what is meat necessarily. Um, how can we achieve something that works? That works. Yeah, that's the key. How
1: can we? Can, we know how to achieve things. We don't know how to achieve things that work. Um, you know, I think um, doing something about costs is is going to be incredibly important given our budget situation. We know that healthcare spending is increasing in Medicare. We know that it's increasing in Medicaid. It will increase even more as a result of the insurance expansion, so what can we do? In the absence of knowing what we can do, I worry greatly that our legislators will be drawn to creating boards that resemble nice in the UK where a group of um, deliberative, thoughtful individuals decide what to cover and what not to cover. And I think while this has appealed to a lot of Americans, there's really no way that some board sitting in Washington or some board sitting in Boston will will know what works for a particular patient in the sense of patient preferences. You know, I might value side effects very differently than you might value side effects. So I think the way to lead on costs is to preserve the autonomy of individual doctors and hospitals and really think about bundled payments for different types of goods and services. So the idea would be you've got a patient, the patient has come in with congestive heart failure, or the patient has come in with a heart attack, and what we should do is pay the provider group that's responsible for treating the patient a fixed amount of money, this would be the bundle payment, to take care of the heart attack and everything else associated with the heart attack, not just for the first five days after the heart attack or the first 10 days after the heart attack, but for six months after the heart attack. And this sort of reimbursement system would um, essentially give providers the right incentives to deliver the care that is valuable and not deliver the care that is financially lucrative to them but offers no therapeutic benefit to patients. So it's sort of a hybrid approach. It's an approach where we're saying, look, clearly fee-for-service medicine doesn't work. Clearly we have to do something about costs. It's not okay to just reimburse doctors and hospitals on the basis of how much care was done. But the right way is then not to come along and say, well, we know what should be done inside, you know, to this patient or to that patient, because we'll never figure that out. Medicine is just incredibly complicated to really have a group of people who are not present at the site of care make that determination. So I think the hybrid model is for this group to say, look, we think that the average heart attack can be treated for $20,000, so maybe some heart attacks you need to spend $30,000, some heart attacks you spend $10,000, but on average, $20,000 $20,000 is, is good. Um, and this allows doctors and hospitals to stent the patients who need a stent and not to stent the patients that don't need a
0: stent. So that kind of system seems to be you know something that can be implemented in, for systems like Medicare. Um, but what about for private insurance? How do you force a private insurance company to adopt a system like that for reimbursement? So I think two things. I mean, I think one one thing that I will say
1: is never underestimate the power of leading in Medicare first. So, you know, if we think back to the early 1980s and we think back to the introduction of the DRG system in Medicare, it was introduced in Medicare, but it was quickly picked up by all the private payers. Uh, It's another way of saying that when government leads properly, the private market will follow. Um, the other way to think about this is that Medicare is one reason why the private insurers don't really lead on their own. The incent- It's very hard for an individual insurer, however large they may be, to come along to a hospital or physician practice and say, We are going to offer you bundle payments for heart attack patients and diabetic patients and congestive heart failure patients when other payers are not willing to do that. So it's basically a coordination problem. And Medicare, by virtue of being such a large payer, if it moves, then private payers could actually finesse the Medicare model substantially better than Medicare may have been able to do in the first place. So that's the optimism. And you may say, well, what's the evidence for it? And I would say, well, we have to look at the experience of the 1980s. And there, certainly, when Medicare led, the private market followed. You've seen other examples of this uh, in other contexts where Medicare has decided to cover a certain technology, and private insurers actually begged Medicare not to cover that technology. They said, if you cover it, we will have to cover it because if our patients sue us in court, most courts will rule on the side of patients if Medicare covers it. Mm -hmm. It's, again, a sign that private insurers have really not done as well as they could have, in part because of the lousy
0: incentives from Medicare. So, Medicare is by far the largest uh, uh, driver of our long-term debt in the United States. Uh, Is a system like that, would that be just cutting the costs of of care just slightly, or is it enough to make it uh, uh, financially feasible in its current form? Or- Alternatively, is there some fundamental change needed to, uh, to address that debt problem? For instance, Paul Ryan's uh, approach of uh, voucherizing the system. Is that something that we should be looking into as a possible alternative that we can afford?
1: So I think the, the, the big question for all of us is you know, what do we want to cover? There are drug companies and device manufacturers who develop shiny new things all the time, and right now, our status quo is to cover them regardless of their value. Every time we cover them, it is true that some patient somewhere benefits, but it's also true that another taxpayer has to pay more in taxes to pay for it. So we're not willing to say new to shiny new medical therapies. And so simply voucherizing health care does not save money in healthcare if the voucher is too generous. So if we said, well, gee, every American gets a voucher to purchase health care for $15,000, the fact that it's a voucher doesn't really mean that we've spent, you know, doesn't automatically mean that we've saved money. On the flip side, we could say every American gets a voucher for $3,000. Well, now we would have saved a lot of money, but we would have effectively uninsured a number of people because some of these therapies are expensive. And so the voucher may not cover the cost of an insurance offering that covers this new medical technology that we want people to have access to. So, you know, we're going to have to have a very difficult conversation around how many Americans can we insure versus what can we insure them for. Uh, In other words, whom to cover versus what to cover. We know how to insure 40 million Americans. We can insure them overnight and offer them a relatively skinny insurance offering. So this would look like catastrophic care. It would cover them for things like heart attacks and car accidents and cancer, but it's really not going to cover them for a lot of things that they may want coverage for, like hypertension and diabetes. That's not the choice that the president and Congress made three years ago. Three years ago, the decision that they made was essentially to cover 30 million people, but give them access to essentially everything. Um, and so as a result, they weren't able to cover everybody. So there is this very uncomfortable arithmetic this very uncomfortable trade-off between whom to cover and what to cover, and that is a conversation that economists don't have the answer to, and we as a society have absolutely displayed no willingness to have. But until we have that conversation, any conversation around vouchers and cost growth is in some sense premature, because once you tell me how many lives you
0: are willing to cover and for how much, you know, I can tell you how best to do it. So I think a lot of people would agree that our current... Uh, Congress and its uh, partisanship uh, does not exactly yield um, the best uh, results in terms of uh, coming to uh, uh, consensus. How in that kind of environment can we push forward on, on deciding which procedures should be covered, which shouldn't, you know, what, what is cost effective and what is important? So I think that's a terrific point. I think
1: there are a number of similarities, though, between the two sides. Uh, They both agree that Medicare is the single biggest threat to the long-term economic health of the United States. Simply that acknowledgement, which I think both parties share, is an enormous realization, Uh, uh, and I think we can work off of that right away. In some sense, while everyone focuses on the partisanship issue, what I worry about is that both sides have conspired in some sense or have ignored the real threat, which is that taxes will go up in the future in an unprecedented manner. So according to the Congressional Budget Office, by the year 2050, if cost growth in Medicare exceeds the growth of the economy by 2 2.5%, then the top marginal tax rates will be 92%. Now, at 92% marginal tax rates, the United States stops looking like the United States. It starts to make Sweden look like a picnic. So I think the real challenge is not the partisanship, but it's really getting people on both sides to understand that every year we delay taking on costs, taking on the value issue in healthcare, is a day that we have effectively increased taxes on ourselves, on our children, on unborn Americans. I think that is the real challenge for us to wrestle with. The more I think about this, the more convinced I am that we need to take Congress out of healthcare policy completely. You might say, my gosh, this is a crazy idea. But if you think about monetary policy, over 100 years ago, we created the Federal Reserve. We created the Federal Reserve, and we took Congress out of the business of monetary policy. We now have an independent board. It's thoughtful and deliberative. And it decides what we should do when it comes to you know, setting interest rates. We need a similar authority, something like a Federal Reserve for health care policy, to be equally deliberative on how much we want to spend on healthcare. Now that's different than a body that says, "Gee, this technology works and that technology works." I think that that decision making should be left up to individual doctors and nurses and physicians assistants and pharmacists. That's not a decision that Washington or the State House should wade into. But when it comes to the social insurance programs, when it comes to Medicare and Medicaid, we want a thoughtful body telling us what we're willing to spend because there's absolutely no evidence that voters and consequently politicians know what we should be spending. Voters complain about cost growth, but they scream loudly when anything is cut out of healthcare spending, no matter how useless. So I think that's what's really broken, is that ultimately our politicians are doing what voters want them to do. And Democrats and Republicans don't agree on, voters who are Democrats and Republicans don't agree on the right thing to do. So it's unsurprising that people in Washington then uh, reflect that uh, uh, incredible schism.
0: Obviously, the Fed is uh, is rather controversial among a number of people. I can uh, just imagine the calls of unaccountable bureaucrats and all that kind of thing. Is that a feasible option? Do you think that's something that uh, could be pushed through? Well, I think the right way to think about it is, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But right now, we are
1: on a path towards 92% top marginal tax rates. That's the path that we're on. Mm -hmm. And this body, I think, if you look at the history of the Federal Reserve, and if you create an an organization that's as independent, um, one just has to ask, can we do better than the 92% top marginal tax rate? And I think the answer is yes. Now, I'm one of those people who thinks that taxes could increase. Uh, I just don't think that they can increase to that level without some severe economic damage.
0: Well, Professor Amitabh Chandra, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.